It's another Friday on This Week in the CLE, where we wrap up the week's news. I'm Chris Quinn with Jane Cahoon and Layla Tassi today to talk on our news podcast discussion. Layla, you published the story we talked about yesterday about Armin Budish displacing the homeless from independence, capitulating to the mayor out there. What kind of reaction did you get? Oh, my gosh. Lots and lots of emails. And, and I would honestly say they're evenly divided between those who are very supportive of of the uh, the concept of of using hotels in this way to support this this uh, very vulnerable population. And, you know, those who are in complete support of the mayor's attitudes toward it in independence. So, you know, when I'm looking at my inbox, I see, you know, on one hand, someone saying, thank you for your frank and compassionate reporting regarding this. And on the other hand, very next message, perhaps they can relocate these people to your home. <laughs> so yeah, uh, that's the kind I of reaction I'm getting. Yeah, and I saw a couple where people are trying to say, you injected race into this. This isn't race. And it's like, oh, okay, 60% sake. of the people that are there are black, and you have a city that's 95% black. You can't tell me racism isn't part of it. Of course. Um, I, you know, I, I'm not surprised that based on what we've seen over the past year uh, that there are people that would defend this. Uh, you know, the Donald Trump years made it okay to say things like that again after decades of it being completely inappropriate. Right. But but I can't imagine that the overwhelming public opinion will go this way. Um, so we'll have to see. It's a good piece. I hope people look it up. Let's begin. Lots of people were laughing at Ohio this week because of ridiculous testimony about vaccines making people into magnets. But there is a serious and dangerous proposed law at the center of this frivolity. Jane Cahoon, what is that law and why is it dangerous? Yeah, I agree. We were quite the national spectacle when this anti-vaccine doctor testified before this Ohio House committee that, you know, after you take the vaccine, forks and keys are going to stick to your body and that you're going to interact with 5G <laughs> cell towers and so forth. So this was truly stunning as as people sat seriously in the audience and the Republican lawmakers who invited her didn't challenge these wild theories or anything. But at the heart of this, as you asked, is this legislation sponsored by a Republican from the Cincinnati area, and it's called the Vaccine Choice and Anti-Discrimination Act. And it's had three legislative committee hearings so far in the Republican-controlled House where vaccine skeptics have been allowed to to come in and basically spread misinformation. So, you know, while a lot of people got a big kick out of making fun of this and the bizarre claims, a lot of prominent medical experts and business groups are really seriously worried about this bill, which they say is going to jeopardize Ohioans' health and hamper efforts to prevent like deadly disease outbreaks and and be bad for our economy too. It it doesn't just apply to coronavirus vaccines, but to all vaccines. So for instance, you know, hospitals routinely require their personnel to get the flu shot. They they wouldn't be allowed to do that anymore. And public and private businesses wouldn't be allowed to segregate unvaccinated people or requiring or require them to wear face coverings. Remember, like during the NFL draft where you had to show proof of vaccination to sit in a certain section? Well, they wouldn't be able to do that. It would it would undermine schools ability to make sure kids are vaccinated before they come to school. And it would repeal a state law that requires college students to have been vaccinated against hepatitis B and meningitis to live on campus. So 
you had like dozens of health and business groups that have come forward to oppose this bill, including the Cleveland Clinic, University Hospitals, Akron Children's Hospital, the Academy of Medicine of Cleveland and Northern Ohio, the Ohio Manufacturers Association, and the Ohio Chamber of Commerce. They sent a letter this week to the Ohio House Health Committee, which is the one vetting this bill and allowing these people to come in saying it puts the public health of all Ohioans, including kids, at risk. It said, at its core, this proposal would destroy our current public health framework that prevents outbreaks of potentially lethal diseases, threatens the stability of our economy as it recovers from a devastating pandemic, and jeopardize the way we live, learn, work, and celebrate life. This is idiotic. I mean, it's another one of those proposals you just look at and think these are people that don't respect science. They don't respect academic rigor. They're just, it's clowns. And we keep telling ourselves this doesn't have a chance of passage. So how much attention do we want to pay for it? But when you have three full hearings, lunatic testimony about turning our bodies into magnets and no challenging of that by the Republicans that are seeking to pass it, it's a threat. I mean, I, I don't, I'm, I, I hope this has no chance of passage because it's truly <laughs> stupid. But but it, with this legislature, you, you just yeah. don't know. So, you know, I'd like to be a little optimistic and say, no, that it's not going to pass. Or at least if it does, it's going to be watered down into something very different. But, of course, you would have no idea if you listen to the House Speaker, Bob Cup, who told reporters on Thursday that, you know, he saw the viral video of this bizarre testimony, but he offered no information on the bill's chances of passing or whether he was going to intervene in it. He said, beyond that, that's a process of the committee and I don't have anything further on that, which is his is his pat response here for just about everything. But I, I think it's just been interesting here to see this confluence of the these you know vaccine conspiracy theorists floating these fringe ideas combined with the hard right lawmakers who see vaccines as an infringement on their personal freedom rather than a life-saving measure to get us out of this pandemic so you combine those two things and you know that's pretty potent here and and you know even though it might not pass it's just it's getting some steam you know yeah what is it about ohio we got jim jordan we got josh mandel we got the doctor that's saying you can you'll, you'll be a magnet i mean we just keep getting national ridicule for stupidity yeah. and it's like when when are we going to get somebody like a john glenn that represents yeah. ohio and the nation can respect again we have nobody yeah. on the I horizon should, yeah i should point out that that governor mike dewine brought it up at the end of his Vaximilian briefing on Thursday. So you got to give him some credit. He talked about these memories of polio when it struck the country when he was a child and how this just terrorized parents. And he said, you know, we got to keep perspective and remember what life was like before modern medicine. We we have now gotten beyond things like measles, mumps, polio, whooping cough. You know, these were once common things that caused great suffering and death for thousands of people every year. So that was his plea on this. But um, yeah, yeah. I, well, you, you would hope that the majority of Ohioans get that in this small but very vocal fringe uh, would go away. But we'll have to see what happens with this. Bob Cup has proven to be anything but a leader. Got to move on. So this week in the CLE. 
It happened very quietly this week, but shouldn't we take a moment to celebrate the long-awaited completion of the Towpath Trail, which lets you ride your bike from Lake Erie all the way down to New Philadelphia, 101 miles away. Leila Tassi, we've we've been talking about the Towpath for so many years <laughs> that it kind of was like, huh, big deal, but it is a right. big deal. Yeah, it certainly is. It's it's hard to believe this finally happened, but on Wednesday, they held the ribbon-cutting ceremony that marked the completion of it. About 120 residents and community development specialists and city planners and bike enthusiasts and all the elected officials, they all came together in Tremont at the site of Camp Cleveland, which is a Civil War training ground overlooking the city's skyline and the industrial flats. The 101-mile towpath, you know, it follows the, the route of the 1832 Ohio and Erie Canal south to Tuscarawas County. It was largely finished south of Cleveland by 2000, but it took more than two decades and $54 million in mostly public funding to complete this northernmost five-mile stretch between Harvard Avenue at the city's southern edge and Canal Basin Park. That's the original northern end of the 1832 uh, Canal on Columbus Road Peninsula. So in 2009, after a bunch of planning studies, the county, Cleveland Metro Parks, City of Cleveland, and Canal Way Partners signed this four-way agreement to finally get this job done. Steve Lid does a, just a lovely job walking us through the history of the restoration effort and the creation of all the intersecting trails uh, on Cleveland.com. Uh, so everyone should check it out. You know, I we I was talking to somebody earlier this week. Any day now, there's going to be a proposal to spend a bunch of public money on Progressive Field. It's been something that's been out there for a while. And, you know, I'm sure it'll be many tens of millions of dollars, if not more than 100. Who knows? But but the person I was talking to was suggesting that if you took that kind of money for public recreation and you put it into things like the Towpath Trail, so many more people use it. I mean, thousands of people use that trail every day. You can ride your bikes pretty safely now all the way down. It's connecting to a network of trails. So when the money question, public money question comes up for the baseball stadium, it would be interesting to do the comparison. You know, do you spend $80 million to fortify a baseball stadium for people who go to baseball games in certain numbers, or would you be better off spending it for projects like this that that just get used by everybody? Right, right. Have you ever biked the trail? Yeah, yeah, not in a while. Um, but it, it's, it, look, it's a great trail. I've walked on it. I mean, we hiked we've hiked it a lot. We've been out to see that Eagle's nest, um, in Rexville a bunch of times. Uh, but you know, now that you can ride it from Lake Erie all the way down and they're connecting it. Think about if you had closed half a Chester, um, Chester Avenue and turned it into a protected bike trail, you would then connect the towpath all the way to university circle and the network of bike trails that, that are, that are growing from there. I mean, you could really protect people who want a bike in safety without getting mowed down by texters. And that's what the towpath does. So it's a very cool project. And, it is. Uh, worth, worth mentioning. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Should it surprise anyone that Bill Seitz, long the defender of First Energy in the state's $60 million bribery scandal, was the one leading the charge Thursday against ousting disgraced former House Speaker Larry Householder from the Ohio House? Jane, I guess the simple answer to that is a big no. Seitz <laughs> is playing the role of the devil, right? I mean, it's like he's championing First Energy, which tried to scam us all for a billion dollars and pump $60 million into a bribery scheme. Now he's championing the guy who masterminded it 
What is wrong with Bill Sykes? <laughs> we ask that question a lot on this podcast, but you are correct. No, it should not surprise anyone, even though I have to say this was kind of surreal in, in some ways. So, uh, you know, and as we said, th- this isn't the first time Sykes has stood up at the statehouse to, to agitate about this and, and try to suggest that the federal government's case is somehow lacking against Larry Householder, despite three of his co-defendants already admitting to this massive bribery scheme, which just involved the total corruption of the legislative process. I mean, it wasn't something that happened, you know, outside of the legislature. This was, you know, as I said, the corruption of the whole process. But, you know, Seitz is a lawyer and uh, he took the opportunity at this rules committee meeting on Thursday to basically cross-examine the lawmakers who have who have finally had the the courage to bring forward resolutions to expel householder from the from the house and um, the the Ohio Constitution allows lawmakers to remove a member by a two-thirds vote for what it calls disorderly conduct now um, sites who's who's a Republican leader he he's apparently among this small but comparatively uh, or comparatively small but influential group of of Republicans that's been holding up the removal of Householder. So anyway, he seized on this term disorderly conduct and noted that you know Householder isn't accused of violating any part of the statutory definition of the disorderly conduct. And he said, you know, the the ones who want to oust holder oust Householder are saying that this definition is whatever they say it is. And he said, this strikes me as being the same argument that Democrats, you know, used in their in impeachment proceedings against Donald Trump. And so, you know, one of the lawmakers who wants to expel Householder, this is a Republican, Brian Stewart of Pickaway County. He said, you know, while disorderly conduct is defined in Ohio law, the term is not defined in the Ohio Constitution, and it's up to legislators to decide for themselves whether to whether to punish their fellow members. And he, he argued that householders' conduct is indeed disorderly, saying the only person who's not lost their job is the only person who's indicted for being the mastermind of this whole scandal. And he just so happens to be the only person collecting a paycheck from, from the taxpayers. And, you know, Seitz wouldn't give up. He said he was asking the Democrats, you know, why do you want to kick out Householder? He's he doesn't have any power. He's been not been assigned to any committees. And 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 they're like, well, uh, what about the perception here that we accept this kind of of conduct? You know, he's disgracing the entire body. Everybody who is in that body is harmed by his presence. The fact that they cannot act to remove this cancer who has disgraced Ohio in this body, that's the answer. But Bill Seitz, I guess, has no shame. And so (laughs) he doesn't mind being disgraced. I mean, the fact that he tried to preserve that first energy corrupt deal uh, still boggles the mind. I mean, his constituents must just be blind because they keep reelecting him. You know, I, I have another little argument here that you're going to love. State Representative Don Jones of Harris, Harrison County, a Republican, he expressed fears that if they use this broad authority to expel householder, it's going to open the door to other members being ousted because of hurt feelings or other reasons. Yeah, I know. I saw that. That's just ridiculous. <laughs> and, you know, next thing you know, he'll be testifying that he's turned into a magnet because he got the vaccine. Yeah. I mean, it's like just as loony. <laughs> All right, you're listening to This Week in the CLE. What's it say to Clevelanders when a candidate for mayor who repeatedly has cited public safety as the city's most pressing need witnesses a shooting 
just hours after he files his papers to be on the ballot. And Layla, this shooting was downtown in the center of the city in daytime. It was, man. This is such a chilling coincidence. Mayoral hopeful and former city councilman Zach Reed had just filed his petitions to run for mayor when he had pulled over on the side of the road downtown to take a phone call. It was like 12, 15 p.m. Wednesday. Police said just then a gunman in a black SUV pulled up next to a 23-year-old man's car that was stopped at a traffic light at the intersection where, where you know, near where Reed was. The gunman opened fire, hitting the man once in the hip before driving off across the Detroit Superior Bridge. Police believe that the shooting was retaliatory in nature. So Reed was just right around the corner on, you know, where from where this happened, which was like West Ninth and Superior, when he heard three pops and look up, looked up to see a man running while clutching his stomach and this SUV speeding off. Like I said, just a very striking coincidence that on the day that Reed filed his mayoral petitions, he witnessed the very violence that he's made a focal point of not just his past and present mayoral runs, but his entire career as a councilman, really. I mean, the city's violence epidemic and this ever-increasing death toll has been top of mind for Reed for as long as I've known him. Any reporter who's covered him during his time on city council is familiar with his his big map of the city covered in red pushpins. There's one for every homicide in a given year. It's just a very striking image. He would haul that board to council meetings just to try to keep the violence epidemic in his colleagues' consciousness. He brought anti-violence experts like Cure Violence to Cleveland. He sponsored multiple anti-violence summits with experts from across the nation. So heading into this mayoral race, the subject is pretty much queued up for him as Cleveland is in the thick of this second consecutive record-breaking year of violence. And now Reed has a recent and personal experience to draw from, too. It's just such a striking coincidence that this happened. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. You know, he's got pretty high negatives, and he got trounced pretty badly in the general election last year. And there are other candidates that seem like they have more traction. But it does feel like Cleveland residents are electrified by the violence. We just came out of a weekend. We were what, 33 people or there were 33 shootings. It's like, this is, this is bad. And when you have a shooting in, in, in downtown Cleveland in the middle of the day, where, where where a mayoral candidate just happens to be sitting, it does emphasize it. It'll be interesting to see whether he, he gets the traction from that this time that he didn't quite get last time. Right. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Why is the Ohio Senate seeking to disregard federal housing subsidies paid to landlords when they assess the value of their properties? Is it possible, Jane Cahoon, that they want to reduce the number of homes available to people with housing vouchers and another blow to those in poverty? Yeah, you know, I think we could write dozens of stories about this budget with all the things that lawmakers have decided to shove into it that don't bode well for the poor. But Eric Heisig went deep on this one amendment that's causing a lot of concern among affordable housing advocates and and really explained the consequences for people who live in in subsidized low-income housing. This amendment would require county auditors to disregard federal subsidies that are awarded to low-income housing when when they conduct appraisals. And, and housing advocates say that could lead to financial woes for the property owners, and that in turn could lead to fewer homes for, for needy people. The, the amendment says that federally subsidized rental properties must be appraised based on the market rate for units in that area instead of accounting for the subsidies and using 
the amount of rent that's actually paid. And as we know, residents in low-income housing often pay rent that's that's capped at a lower rate. So the result of the amendment would be more revenue for local governments. And, and Senate President Matt Huffman, who's apparently pushing this, said it was aimed at making sure that for-profit companies pay their fair share of property taxes. He's, that's something he felt other taxpayers who don't get breaks uh, based on federal subsidies should support. He said, when someone's making millions of dollars building low-income housing and then they don't want to pay the taxes on the true value of that building, that rankles other taxpayers who are paying their taxes. You know, it should also rankle school districts and all the other recipients of these funds. Of course, uh, just as an aside, I'll add that uh, you know, they put these income tax cuts in the uh, budget that do nothing for poor people because poor people don't pay income tax. That they, they benefit more people at the higher ends, but that's just an aside. Um, anyway, so the as I said, housing advocates are really worried about this because they think the owners of the of these um, units across the state, you know, it could double their property tax bills, and you know, as a result, they're they're not going to build as many units. Leila Tassi, do you need an invitation to this conversation? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you know how I feel about this. The answer is more affordable housing, not less. And any policy that stands in the way of that is is hurting Ohioans. And I have a hard time understanding why, why legislators don't understand that. That's just... Uh, Ah, uh, that's just you've written in detail me. about the need to make it easier for people with vouchers to find available yes. housing. That that's <laughs> yes. the big challenge is is that there are so many roadblocks to using that voucher. So in, many you know, roadblocks. and they have deadlines. This would reduce the number of units available. Yes, right. And, I mean, and, cutting it and from and that end half- too. I mean, it's there's already a resistance to taking vouchers, and now you're going to reduce the number of of ah uh, just. Uh, Like, I I feel my blood pressure rising as we were speaking of this. (laughs) And again, there'll be no debate because they're cramming it into the budget instead of having the the normal legislative process. This seems to me, Jane Coon, to be the worst year for the shenanigans of shoving stuff into the budget that should be go through committees and have full legislation. At the end, we're going to have to count all of the things that should have been separate laws and and question why Ohio's single subject rule isn't applying. It's a yeah. It's a bad... Don't get me started. Okay, well we'll talk about that again. <laughs> You're listening to this week in the CLE. What's the holdup on coronavirus aid for Cleveland's music venues? Didn't the government set aside some money, especially to help them during the coronavirus? Leila Tassi, they're not getting the money. No, they're not. Those businesses applied for the Small Business Administration's shuttered venue operators grant more than a month ago, and they still haven't received their money. $16.1 billion had been set aside to help these venues including movie theaters and concert venues, talent representatives and other performing arts organizations. The applications portal opened in April and it was immediately flooded with applications for this first priority wave of applicants. Those are the businesses that have lost more than 90 percent of their revenue because of the pandemic. More than 4,900 small businesses applied for that first priority period, with 10,000 more falling into the second and third priority periods. The, among those are the grog shop in Cleveland Heights, for example. Uh, it 
it's it's pretty much been closed for 14 months. The owner, Kathy Blackman, says when she checks on her application in the portal, it's listed as submitted and still hasn't advanced to being under review. By contrast, the SBA's Restaurant Revitalization Fund, which started accepting applications on May 3rd, has already dispersed funds to many of the eligible local restaurants and eateries. So a large group of industry advocates like the National Independent Venue Association and the performing arts managers and agents are calling for the funds to be released immediately. And it's just flabbergasting that it would take this long. And Nikoloff reported that there are 500 SBA reviewers and that if each one of them approved one application each day, you know, the the organization would have approved about 14,000 by now. So, you know, just and, and, and the truth is only 90 have been awarded as of June 9th. So this this, you know, people are suffering. They continue to suffer. These these venue operators are just now getting back on their feet and they, they have continued to try to pay their their staff. It, it's time to step it up. This is this is uh, unconscionable. Well, and they could go out of business. They all live yeah. on pretty tight margins. And so every day counts to toward them, whether they survive or not, which is why the whole fund was created. So they should be getting the check so they can survive. Well, it was good reporting by Annie Nikoloff to put the focus on this. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Do we have a better idea today than we did yesterday of why things are moving so slowly in the trials of former Ohio House Speaker Larry Householder and others charged in Ohio's $60 million bribery scheme? Jen Cahoon, it was an enlightening story John Kenneglia published on this yesterday. I can now see why this is going to take a very long time. Yeah, it was pretty eye-popping. It's basically because federal authorities have gathered about $1.2 million pages of records in their investigation of Householder. When they told the federal judge, Timothy Black, this on Thursday, he said, you've made my head hurt. <laughs> the the federal prosecutors have turned these records over to defense lawyers, and they hope to have this process completed by uh, late August. One of the prosecutors said much of this recent information they have gathered has come from third-party sources. I'm not exactly sure what that means, but uh, it includes 100,000 pages in just the last 10 days. The The prosecutor didn't, didn't reference the sources, but uh, John Coniglia pointed out that in many federal cases, such documents include things like phone and bank records that they get through subpoenas. So the judge hasn't set a trial date. He said it would be unreasonable and unfair to expect the case to go to trial anytime soon, given the complexity of it and all of these records. So he's supposed to meet with the attorneys again on September 2nd. And, uh, you know, one of Householder's lawyers noted that they they need some reasonable time to conduct their review of the information and their own independent investigation. So, uh, you know, it's going to be a while before we see uh, Larry Householder before a jury. You got to think that these records include a lot of emails and that can be voluminous. And anybody that's ever read large collections emails it can be really tedious to go through them because of all the repetition and things so 1.2 million pages of phone records emails and other things would indeed take forever to go through too bad i was hoping we'd get to that trial this summer yeah uh, i was going to provide some good news stories we'll get to it eventually you're listening to this week in the cle what are prosecutors in cuyahoga county thinking in continuing their case against an army soldier accused of murder 
How many setbacks have they suffered this week? And how can they possibly hope to win at this point? Layla Tassi, it feels like they had a handful of sand and they squeezed it and all the sand ran out between their fingers. <laughs> it's, oh my gosh, that's such a good metaphor. So this is the case of Tevin Biles Thomas, the Army soldier charged with several counts of murder in a shootout at a 2018 New Year's Eve party. He also, of course, happens to be the brother of Olympic gymnast Simone Biles. The case was first tried last month and ended in a mistrial when, along with the evidence that the jury was sent back to deliberate with, someone erroneously included trial briefs in which the attorneys were arguing whether to allow the jury to consider a potential self-defense claim. And jurors read those documents and told the judge that they affected their feelings about the case. So, mistrial. Well, this week, they started anew, and Judge Joan Sinnenberg barred the prosecutors from asking one of two key witnesses to identify Tevin Biles Thomas as the shooter in court. The witness, it turns out, had not seen the shooter's face and had only identified Biles Thomas after seeing his arrest photo in a news story the judge also suppressed Biles Thomas's testimony to the grand jury that was the basis for a perjury charge. Prosecutors had said that he lied to the grand jury about having a gun and whether he knew that one of the shooting victims had died. But the judge decided that testimony came after prosecutors improperly spoke to him when he had requested to speak to an attorney. So basically, the prosecutors had no choice but to dismiss the perjury charge. And the case is now hinging on the testimony of one witness who admitted during the first trial that he didn't see Biles Thomas shoot. And now okay, so, so, prosecutors... So wait, 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 wait. Before you go to the next development, I don't know. I, I understand how you can continue when your uh... witness is telling you I didn't see it, but it actually gets worse. I know it does. Prosecutors... <laughs> prosecutors can't find that witness. They can't find that witness or two other witnesses. What... <laughs> Sorry. So well, what happens? I mean, how do they come, one of how whom you... was shot in the head during the incident? The witness who's who's missing had told the last jury that he saw Biles Thomas commit the shooting, but then he admitted on cross-examination that he didn't actually witness the shooting and was really only testifying to that as part of a plea deal because he had stolen a gun from the crime scene and threw it in the lake and was being held responsible for that. So today the judge is going to decide whether to issue warrants for the arrest of those witnesses if they can't if they don't show and don't respond to the prosecutors. And in the meantime, the whole case is just kind of falling apart. Well, it's a, it, I don't even if they get the witness, if he comes in and he says, yeah, I didn't see him do the shooting. There is nobody that ties the, the, <sighs> the accused to the shooting. And I, how does a jury I know. convict beyond a reasonable doubt? It just seems like this is one where once it was dismissed because of the papers getting to the jury. On the, the other hand, though, it is such a serious case because three people are, were killed. Someone but, pulled but, the trigger. So so why not wait then until you have an ironclad case? I mean, I mean true. Do some more investigation. Yeah. Uh, you know, there had yeah. to be, uh, weren't there other people present or how big of a party was it? I mean, some three people get shot at a party. I'm assuming that there must be some more people who would come forward. Uh, if he's acquitted, they can never try him again, even if they get the the more ironclad evidence. And so that's true. This one is Maybe. risky. And and so I, it'll be interesting to see how it ends. Yes. You're, lis you're listening to This Week in the CLE. That does it for another week of discussions. Jane Cahoon, you're going to be off next week. We'll miss you. We're going to have to replace you. <laughs> I, I don't know who's going to do that yet. Layla, thank you. Thanks to everybody who listens to this podcast. <laughs>